Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this week my friend Al got chased by a swan, the mental image of which has cheered me up no end. They can be well aggressive swans when they want to be. I mean, not as bad as geese, not as bad as the ducks that bite your trousers. (laughs) Oh, I think they can be as bad. There is a swan in Cambridge that is so aggressive that it was given a nickname. It's called Mr. Asbo (laughs) because they actually had to move it because it just kept attacking people that were on the river. Google it, people. You've got the time. (laughs) I'm Hannah Tudor-Levy and last week I arranged a baby shower. What? Never thought you'd hear that, did you? I mean... It's been a surprise. I've had to rethink everything I thought I knew about you, Dunleavy. But what I will say to people as a piece of advice is if you feel like you would have to maybe organise a baby shower once in your life, do it during lockdown because essentially it's just a group email. (laughs) Uh, Topics covered included abortion, dick pics and politics. It was very much a standard issue baby shower. And inextricably linked to all of that, it is the first week of Jen's maternity leave, so no Jen here, but... Coming up, time-travelling Jen talks <laughs> to author and illustrator Laura Dockrell about her new book, What Have I Done? An account of her experience of postpartum psychosis. Dr Rachel Clark, specialist in palliative medicine, author of Dear Life and wonderfully outspoken supporter of the NHS, chats to me about the possibility of dying well. And you can hear our full chat as this week's Sunday Chops. And in Dunleavy Does Disney, it's bad news for the over 50s as we watch The Current Crisis. No, wait, Deep Impact. (laughs) Oh, God. But first, we might never not be angry again. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, a transatlantic seesaw finely balanced with absolute shit shows. So, here we are, recording on June the 1st, which I say only to put it in context, because at the rate things are changing, it may well be legal to dry hump the Queen in Tesco's by the time you listen to this. No, I do hope so. What a difference a week makes. Want to go around your mum's house? Okay, provided you don't stay the night. Want to meet your friends in the park? Okay, provided you maintain social distancing. Want to go to Primark? Okay, although maybe take a look at why their clothes are so cheap and maybe don't. Mm -hmm. And here's the biggie. If you've previously been shielding, which includes the elderly, disabled people and those with long-term health conditions, you can totally stop doing that because... And here's the rub. Because what? Exactly. Because it's suddenly a whole lot safer than it was a week ago. Mm. Because we've met those five targets Boris Johnson waffled on about so much. Because the government thinks we'll forget about Dominic Cummings if we can look at a car we can never afford. Mm, I'll let you draw your own conclusions on that. What I do know is pretending that a virus has the capability of somehow getting (laughs) bored and is now thinking about kicking back with a spliff and finally chucking into the Sopranos and that if we all sneak out really quietly, it probably won't notice. I think that's a mistake. And announcing huge chunks of that info via a tweet is, well... Well, it's the least I'd expect from this shower of charlatans. Are we carrying out the correct amount of tests to even gauge the size of the problem? Let's take a look. We are currently, and have been for the last several days, doing figure unavailable tests. (laughs) That sounds reassuring, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
And if you listen to GMTV and Piers Morgan, and believe me, that's not something I say lightly, <laughs> how many tests we were doing before that can also be called into question, given his claim that if a person was given both a throat and a nose swab, they were counted as two tests. Yeah. It appears that common sense is now the watchword, as if most of us haven't already been using that. I say most of us, you know, us. Not them. The plebs. Yeah, that's us. And if that has meant treating every single word that comes out of the government's mouth with the contempt it deserves, my advice, should it be wanted, is to carry on with that. And good luck to you, but especially to our listeners in the disability community. We are hoping to have more on that in an upcoming podcast. What a confusing mire of misinformation, tweets and nonsense from our government. Absolutely. Over in the US, mass protests continue over the murder of George Floyd, a handcuffed black man who pleaded for air as white police officer Derek Chauvin kneeled on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. The killing was caught on camera and the world, quite rightly, exploded with anger and grief. I'm putting this at the top, but you'll be hearing it again. Black Lives Matter. Chauvin has since been charged with third-degree murder and manslaughter. Are you wondering what the third-degree bit means? Well, in Minnesota law, it tends to mean depraved heart murder, also known as depraved indifference murder, which is when an individual acts with a depraved indifference to human life, which results in a death, despite that individual not explicitly intending to kill. Three other former officers remain uncharged. Also since then, there has been, well, a lot... Too much for me to pack into a Bush Telegraph segment, but a quick summary. Protests are ongoing across America and there were marches here in London and Manchester. Police brutality has been evident at these protests against police brutalities, whereas at others, police stand with their communities against racism and police brutality. President Trump has gone into hiding, perhaps because Twitter finally took umbrage with one of his tweets and slapped a glorifying violence warning on it. Across social media, white people have clamoured to show solidarity, to understand more, to share what everyone should be reading to be a better ally. Here I am, doing the same. I found it telling that black actor John Boyega got a lot of people wailing with the following tweet. I really fucking hate racists. I mean, controversial, eh? Apparently so. Mm. Because there's a stupid, offensive notion that being accused of racism is worse than racism, when, and I cannot stress this enough, it's very much not. More than that, it's not enough to say, I'm not racist. Like, you know, big deal, so what? Who the fuck does that help? Basic morality does not deserve a medal. As Angela Davis said, we have to be actively anti-racist. In the same way that on Standard Issue we bang on about it not being enough for men to just not be sexist, they need to be fighting sexism. And yeah, it's hard to know what to say, worrying about whether you'll put your foot in it. But it being hard or uncomfortable doesn't mean we shouldn't. To quote Desmond Tutu, If you are neutral on situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. So much of this shit continuing relies on nice white people saying fuck all. So, what can we do? Keep standing up. Stay angry. It is powerful. Share the memes, but also walk the walk. Have those difficult conversations with people in your life that might not get it, and keep having them. Various peaceful protests are planned in London on Wednesday the 3rd of June and over the weekend. Keep an eye on hashtag LDNBLM for more details if you consider it safe for you to go to them. Obviously, there's a whole other shit show regarding whether mass gatherings are a good idea at the moment. And of course, cold hard cash is always helpful. 
George Floyd's family has started a GoFundMe to cover funeral and burial costs, counselling services, legal fees and continued care for his children. Or you can give money to the Bail Project, which will also help Black Lives Matter. Indeed. Obviously, protesters shouldn't be being shot at, but I think it's an indication of how indiscriminate brutality has been towards anyone at those protests. That 12 journalists have actually been injured, including some that were hit by rubber bullets. 12 journalists covering it. Two journalists from CNN, one of whom was was a man of colour, were arrested for being at a protest. And an FBI officer was arrested by policemen for being at the protest. It's absolutely terrifying, genuinely terrifying, to think that that's how a police force operates. There's been other images coming out with police forces in Flint, Michigan, who down their riot gear and actually joined the march. Hannah, cheer me up. Would you like a bit of good news, Mick? Yes, please. Well, I mean, I've really had to search around for this. And I mean, bearing in mind that comes in a week where it's become illegal for me to have sex. I genuinely mean I've really had to search around for this. (laughs) But to Germany, where a branch of Ikea opened its car park to local Islamic communities so they could celebrate the end of Ramadan while still respecting social distancing guidelines. The German government suspended religious services in March as part of lockdown measures. And although they had started to allow worshippers to gather in groups of up to 50 at a time, people still had to meet social distancing requirements, making finding a sufficiently large space for all of them to gather in very tough. Said restrictions have prevented many Muslim communities from attending prayer services during the holy month of Ramadan. Kadir Terzi, chairman of a mosque near Frankfurt, approached his local IKEA and asked if they could host their service in the car park and was delighted when they agreed. More than 800 Muslims attended the prayers. It was a completely different Ramadan month, without contacts, without visits and without breaking the fast together, Terzi said. So the closing prayer with all Muslims in Wetzlar was like a reward for us. That's That's why people should be gathering in IKEA car parks. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) A bit more of the positive stuff. Please. J.K. Rowling is publishing a new children's book for free online for children in lockdown. The Ichabog is a fairy tale about truth and the abuse of power set in an imaginary land unrelated to any of her other works. It's been sat in Rowling's attic for years, but as of Tuesday the 26th of May, it started being serialised online in 34 daily instalments. It will then be published as a book, ebook, and audiobook in November, with Rowling's royalties going to projects assisting groups impacted by the pandemic. And JK is encouraging her young readers to get involved in illustrating the Ichabog via a competition that will see winners' drawings published in the printed version. That is also a nice story. In it just. Yeah. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we scream at the sky, but will nobody think of the men? Over to the Daily Mail, I know, I'm sorry, where it's reported that millions of men could be suffering from their partner's menopause because of mood swings. I'll just let that sink in. I mean, I'm not menopausal as yet, but I'd very much like to swing this mood. Go fuck yourself, Daily Mail. Let's forget for just a moment that there's only just started to be any decent research done on an unavoidable major life change that affects half of the population. Let's just nudge to the side for a nanosecond that doctors don't even have to study the menopause or its wide-ranging and sometimes dangerous physical, mental and emotional effects. 
And I'll ignore for now the fact that lockdown and a general shortage means a lot of women aren't currently able to access the medication and hormones they need to help with menopausal symptoms. Health supplement company Future U Cambridge quizzed 1,500 women going through the menopause and 500 male partners. Around a third of the women said they had suffered mood swings, yet 77% of the blokes reckoned their partner's moods were changeable, with 40% adding, she always seems tired. (laughs) I mean, I'm just going to let that sink in. Obviously, to be fair, we don't know if the chaps surveyed were actually being poor me with their answers. And in fact, despite the male's clickbait reporting, and yeah, I know I've fallen for it, but I am very tired and angry right now and this shit isn't helping. The survey is looking to make a positive impact. Dr. Miriam Ferrer, head of product development at Future U, said, Our survey shows that while women are obviously the main sufferers of the menopause, those around them are affected too. There needs to be more discussion around menopause that can hopefully lead to understanding of what women go through and a more positive experience. We should all talk more about the menopause. Half of the world will experience it and the other half will experience some of the consequences. Poor men. Hello, Lucy here. Now you might be thinking, who the hell are you? Fair enough. I'm Lucy Reynolds and I'm going to be doing a few bits and bobs around here while Jen has a baby. You'll hear me on Dunleavy Does Disaster in a bit. But for now, a heads up on what we've got on the pod scene in the next few weeks. Mickey's chatting to Penny Winter about the highs and lows of being a carer and Annika Harry shares some tales of daring do from her favourite gender rebels. Hannah chats to Dr Helen McCarthy about her new book Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood. She's also talking to Rachel Crossley of the East End Women's Museum about their online exhibition about the Fair Pay Act. And if you've not already hit subscribe, you should, so that each freshly squeezed podcast is just there waiting for you. Hello, I am joined on the phone by Dr. Rachel Clark, specialist in palliative medicine and author of Dear Life, A Doctor's Story of Love and Loss. Rachel, hello. Hello. Now, with everything that's going on, you're going to have to imagine that I'm gesturing wildly around me here. It would be remiss of me not to ask how you're doing. Well, thank you. I, I mean, it's, things are very different to how they were, I guess, a month or so ago when it was pretty daunting, pretty overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And what was happening in in hospitals and hospices and, and care homes up and down the country was like nothing we had ever seen before. But fantastically, because the lockdown has worked well and because everybody or or almost everybody has really been amazingly respectful of that the cases are right down now and I wouldn't say things feel back to normal but they're certainly very different to what they were like in Easter say and so we have I think an air of cautious optimism now in the NHS. You have been brilliantly outspoken in the past about the government's mishandling of the NHS and its workers how are you feeling about that right now? Well, this is pretty difficult. I mean, we, we are speaking just after the weekend when Boris Johnson's chief advisor, uh, Dominic Cummings, came out and defiantly stuck to his story that he had not in, in any shape or form breached the regulations that we're all abiding by very, very strictly in this country for the sake of the entire population. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me as a, a you know, as a, as a healthcare worker, it's pretty extraordinary to see the government apparently care more about 
protecting the reputation of one unelected advisor than they do about keeping the nation safe. If only Boris Johnson had shown even a fraction of his dedication to protecting Dominic Cummings towards all of those thousands of very vulnerable people in care homes, for instance, tens of thousands of whom have died. And, and, And personally, I think that anything that muddies the public health messaging, anything that makes people think it's one rule for them and a different rule for us, so why am I going to bother with lockdown, is really, really dangerous because the health of us all relies on all of us being responsible and, if you like, having this sense of civic duty so that everybody's protected, especially our most vulnerable members of society, and, and that ought to apply to the government as much as anyone else. Yeah, I keep thinking that I've stopped being angry about it, and I haven't, <laughs> haven't at all. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and I'm the same. And I think particularly if if you work in palliative medicine, I, I've obviously cared for many people who have died from this dreadful disease. And sometimes the most heartbreaking thing is that their loved ones cannot always be with them, yeah. either because we have to have these very strict infection control measures in the hospital so that means we have to really limit visitors until right at the end of life and that may be only one person from a family so all those other people are missing these these desperately important times to be with their families or they're missing funerals because restrictions apply there or maybe they're missing the birth of their grandchildren or they haven't even seen their new grandchild yet and these are enormous sacrifices that I don't think anyone can underestimate and yet apparently the rules don't apply in the same way to everybody and I I find that incredibly painful really to witness. Because obviously coronavirus and lockdown is shining a pretty stark light on a lot of topics not least inequality as we've just discussed but also how we deal with dying has just been thrown up in the air. You must have seen that firsthand. Absolutely. When you work in palliative medicine, one one of the things that I certainly try to do in, in whatever shape or form I can is gently encourage people to confront what is for many people the most daunting and and frightening topic that we ever face, that of our own mortality. Mm -hmm. That's a huge taboo topic in, in modern British society. If we don't think about it, at least a little bit, you can run into desperately sad situations where somebody suddenly does become seriously or terminally ill and maybe their family members are asked, do you have a sense of what they might wish for at this point? Would they want to go to intensive care? Would they want more treatment or not? And as a family, you realise you just don't know because you've never talked about it. Um, Well, now the whole country collectively is suddenly talking about it because there, there, there is probably not a family in the country who hasn't been affected by this virus. We all know somebody who has died from coronavirus. We've all heard those stories, even if we haven't been affected firsthand. And so whether we like it or not, something that was very much a taboo, that was sort of brushed under the carpet and pushed away into the shadows, it's centre stage. Over 60,000 Britons have died from the disease. And we're all having to think about it. And that's tough. That's traumatic for some people. Definitely. And it's something that Dear Life covers 
with a real tenderness, I think. Dear Life is an incredible heart-wrenching book and it, I found it was a love letter to grabbing life by the balls, although obviously you put things, <laughs> you put it a lot more beautifully than I've just done. <laughs> Why did you want to write Dear Life? In a way, the book was an answer to a, a really simple question that I get asked a lot when I meet someone for the first time and they find out what I do. You say you work in palliative medicine and, and often people will look a bit daunted and they might say something like, gosh, I, I don't know how you can do that. It must be so depressing. Mm -hmm. And actually, I love being a palliative care doctor. I look forward to going to work and it brings me so much joy and meaning in my life. And I think that's because when you work with people who have a life-limiting disease, yes, of course, there is a huge amount of, of grief and sadness, people having to confront huge loss. But at the same time, you're working with people who, who look at what they face and so often rise to it with the most incredible strength and, and dignity and courage. And you tend to see the absolute best of people. So every day at work, I see people who are determined to cherish the days that remain to them. They adore the time they have. They love the time they have with their, their family, the people who are precious to them. And there's something about the resilience of the human spirit that you see in a hospice or in a hospital where people are very unwell that is absolutely remarkable and, and I think during this pandemic which has been so awful in so many ways in a strange sense a part of me also feels lucky because literally every day at work I am surrounded by colleagues and patients who are facing up to this with the most incredible spirit and it and it's inspirational you sort of come away from work every day feeling as though genuinely people are remarkable there is so much kindness and decency and goodness in people at the end of life people by and large care so much more about other people than they do themselves and that i find absolutely remarkable it's everything that's good about human nature there's a gorgeous quote where you say, I help people live what remains of their life on their own terms, not those of their doctor or their daughter. And I know this is the, the crux of the book. This is what you're doing. And obviously people should definitely read it. But can you give me a few examples of how you have helped people in their last days or weeks achieve stuff and live life better? Yes. Yes. I mean, just sometimes incredibly simple things. So often what patients really love is the fresh air, the outdoors. Mm -hmm. This winter, for instance, I, I was working all over New Year and we had one patient who had spent her life, even into her 80s, kind of stomping over the fields, walking miles. And it was bitterly cold outside. It was sunny, but bitterly cold. And she couldn't, she couldn't walk, she couldn't get out of bed. So we thought, well, that's absolutely fine. Hospital beds have wheels. If she can't get outside, let's bring the outside to her. So we wrapped her up in blankets and, and wheeled the bed outside and she just basked there, a bit like Yoda, <laughs> all wrapped up oh. in her blankets, but just felt that wintry sun on her cheek and it was heaven. 
We really like to break the rules when appropriate, if that's important for a patient. So once we cared for a patient who was a farmer and he was devoted to his animals and his wife explained the one thing that would really, really matter to him was seeing his prize-winning bull one last time. <laughs> and so we, we, we decided uh, not, not necessarily to discuss that with the powers that be, but at, at, at some stage, a tractor and a trailer <laughs> drove up into the grounds of the hospital and came round to the hospice garden. And sure enough, he was able to get out and say goodbye to this absolutely enormous bull. This is delightful. Which, yeah, and on paper, you know, that's not medicine. That's not a, a vial of morphine, but that's priceless. That gave him and his family in those memories something so very precious. And I think for me, a good day at work is one where we've managed to achieve something like that for a patient on New Year's Day. I looked after a patient who had watched every single Chelsea football match since he was seven years old. And it just so happened that they were playing on New Year's Day. And so it was a real struggle. We had to scramble. But the best thing that he received that day in terms of his palliative care was getting to watch his beloved Chelsea football team, you know, one last time in the hospice. And, and that kind of thing is so precious. I felt like I learned a lot about what a hospice can be and what a hospice should be and how if we change our attitudes towards dying and it's always going to be something frightening because it ends up being unknown but we can we can absolutely diminish that fear and that makes it better for us as a patient and as family or friends or someone who's going to grieve that loss. I think it's important to be honest and not try and, and sugarcoat things. I think sometimes mm -hmm. There's a slight tendency for some commentators to, to sort of say, look, look, there's no reason why we should be afraid of this. Come on, it's, it's happening to everybody. It's just normal and natural. Sort of just, just get on with it. Stop, stop being afraid. Stop denying it. And personally, I don't think that's... Well, I think it's, it's never helpful, helpful when doctors tell people how they should think about things. But also, I think it's incredibly understandable why people are afraid of dying that the fact that we are mortal creatures and we live these lives that we love so much knowing that one day they're going to come to an end is enormous that's an exceptional thing about being a human being a creature that that lives knowing it is going to die however I think many of the things we're frightened of, we imagine that dying must be hideously painful and full of fear and gloom and despair. I think a lot of that comes from not ever setting foot in, inside places like, like our hospice. So, so people assume that they're going to be these, these awful, intimidating places. And I think even I, as a, as a doctor, when I started out, I feared that because I didn't know any different. But if you actually cross the threshold you discover that there is so much light and laughter and people who are dying actually in a profound sense are no different to people who are living yes they know the end of their life is coming sooner but it doesn't stop them being able to cherish all the little things that we cherish in our lives every day I think in a way 
dying is a lived experience. By and large, we're very good at controlling symptoms such as pain or sickness or breathlessness these days. And so it really doesn't need to be a horrible or hideous experience. It's very rare for it to be like that for people. If you are able to get good palliative care, and and that's the crux of the matter because not everybody does, but if you can get that care and it should be available for everybody come what may, then it's possible, I think, genuinely to live until you die. And, And by live, I mean have experiences that are positive and sometimes beautiful and sometimes meaningful all the way up until the end. And and that's the ideal. That's what I think we should be aspiring to, to provide for everyone in a civilised society. Rachel, Dear Life, available at all good bookshops, yes? Yes, indeed. <laughs> thank you so, so much for sparing me some of your time, particularly when I know you're absolutely up to your ears. And thank you so much for all the work you're doing now. It's it's incredible. It's my absolute pleasure. And, and thank you too. It's been, it's been great chatting. Hello there, listener. Jen here to ask you a little favour, if I may. If you're not doing so already, you can follow us on all of the social medias. Well, not all of them because we're old and we don't know what all of them do. But on Twitter, we are at Standard Issue UK. On Facebook, we are Standard Issue Magazine. And on Instagram, where it would be particularly helpful if you would follow us, we are at Standard Issue Podcast. Also on Twitter, you will find me at Inspira Jen, Mickey at Mixta Noonan and Hannah at That Dunleavy. Ah, go on, give us a follow. I'm joined on the phone by illustrator and author of the new book what have i done laura dockrell hi laura hi so laura your new book what have i done is about your experience of postpartum psychosis so we hear quite a lot about baby blues postnatal depressions but postpartum psychosis the first time i heard of it was actually a couple of years ago when eastenders did a storyline about stacy slater getting postpartum psychosis and i had never heard of it before i didn't realize that this was a thing that could happen so can you tell us a little bit about what it actually is so the illness is a rare and debilitating mental illness that can come on any time in pregnancy but more often than not in the later stage of pregnancy during labor but most commonly when it occurs in after labour. There's little known about the illness, but it is regarded as a medical emergency and you should go straight to A&E if you're experiencing any of the symptoms, which are, I mean, they're delightful. A whole host of symptoms from paranoia, delusion, hallucinations, insomnia, suicidal thoughts. There is euphoria. Didn't get one bit of euphoria, but that there is that. Racing thoughts mania, uh, confusion, withdrawal, anxiety and depression, which is probably one of the only times I got nearly 100% score in any sort of exam of my life when I got that. And it is very rampant. So once you get it, it, it can take over and destroy somebody's whole life within moments, really. It's very serious. And we know it can happen to absolutely anybody. You're 50% probably more, not likely, but vulnerable to it if you have had mental health issues prior to this or if you have in your history, your family history. But again, people have had this in their family history and they don't go on to have it. 
they say that there is more chance of you getting it if you've had a traumatic birth. But then again, people have traumatic births, they don't get it. In your experience of it, how soon after you gave birth to your son did you start to feel like, as you sort of describe it in the book, like, you know, something just wasn't quite right? Um, well, that I felt like that pretty much straight away but I guess with any big life experience you know anything a a marriage or any first even getting your period whatever it is it doesn't always go as you think it's going to go and then there's a little bit it's like oh people said it'd be like this and then there isn't I guess it's your own personal experience but all I know is I kept asking other women did you feel like this did you find that you weren't sleeping when the baby was sleeping did you feel scared did you feel paranoid or and everyone would go oh god yeah 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 definitely definitely which is why the illness is so hard to diagnose because a lot of people some people do have euphoric births and some people find their births spiritual pleasurable incredible that you have that experience but the majority of women do feel like it's something that has happened to them and it can be if you've had to have a lot of intervention which is what I had to have it is kind of trauma your body is sort of trying to catch up going what the hell was that I didn't mention it so much in the book but I did definitely feel that I had been attacked or violated in some way because I had five stretch and sweeps which is if you don't know is like basically being fingered in a not good way by a doctor (laughs) not good yeah not good way um and all these kind of forms of intervention epidural another induction had my waters manually broken with this kind of instrument that looks like it's from the egyptian times to bring someone's brains out through their nostril then cut open and so I, i just felt kind of mauled and i don't think any book really prepared or anyone's kind of experience prepared me for that and the thing is but really the only people that ask you how your labor was were people that are pregnant and so you don't want to go Mm. it was the worst experience of my life because and so the conspiracy goes round when actually it's like it's not normal and I don't think anyway they say oh did you have a normal birth it's like taking a body out of your body is not really normal it's not a normal day at the office is it I think that's the funny thing about pregnancy is that you know it's the most natural thing in the world or whatever but it feels a lot of it feels really unnatural (laughs) It, you know. you know you're making a person like all those cells you're creating that that is a beautiful amazing remarkable thing you should feel like the most powerful important person so deliberate and purposeful but also you'll know maybe that sleeplessness starts to begin and you can't get comfortable and you already are feeling maybe anxious about the performance you know and if you have to have this huge amount of intervention you start to already feel that you like score bronze in the like athletics of labor Mm. and that you've already failed or all these things from breastfeeding to whatever it is and the expectation is so huge that to fall in love with this person that you've never met before whilst the whole world watches it's an enormous pressure basically you'd been through this birth it was quite like a visceral sort of experience did you feel like it was the after effects of that did you have any sort of comprehension I guess of of what was happening to you I mean yeah when I kept going to the GPs you'll see if anybody reads the book I keep saying and they're they're all like it's too soon it's too soon or how would you expect to feel after an experience like that these kind of things but there was kind of a quality to it that you know it's something else. And I've never experienced mental health issue before this, so your your kind of first thing is, is this a devil? Have I been hijacked? Am I being kidnapped by some weird alien? All those things go through your brain. It's very Truman Show, very Black Mirror. 
it is and it isn't how you see in the movies, but suddenly all those movie interpretations of it suddenly make sense. Did you feel like the people around you took it seriously? Did anyone suspect anything more than, oh, you know, she's had a hard birth and she's tired? To be honest with you, the professionals, it was overlooked, but I don't want to do any disservice to the NHS, especially in this current climate. I, I think it was just a real sign how overworked and stretched they are that I couldn't get that maybe to the extent of the aftercare that I truly needed. But certainly my family knew something was wrong, but I don't think they could see what I could see. So when I was hospitalised, Jet was only three weeks, but I was so relieved to be hospitalised because I was like, finally, I don't have to put up this front anymore. I don't have to pretend I'm okay when I'm not. I don't have to pretend to love something. I'm just feeling dead inside or scared. A lot of the time, women's pain, mental or physical, I think, is dismissed by healthcare professionals by society and I think a lot of the time particularly women who've had children there's a lot of like oh well you know your hormones all over the place or oh well you're tired oh you've got the baby blues you know and do you think people are dismissive of women who've just given birth are they dismissive of the challenges that new mums face I think we're all kind of responsible. I think everybody, because I think it's it's universal, and yet we're all so aware of the kind of physical side effects, symptoms, changes of growing a baby, but we're not in the psychological or the mental, and it affects... I mean, I can't tell you the messages I've had from so many women that have just kind of carried on with life with this low-level, some underscoring depression that's, or anxiety that's just followed them to play group to work to bed like every single night and this kind of attitude where it's like well baby's making has been happening for years so kind of get on with it that's certainly how I felt and there's always somebody that tells you the story of their auntie who gave birth to 19 triplets like bit the umbilical cord with her own teeth in a cornfield without any pain relief and you're like what do you want a medal and and you straight away feel that pressure as if you're kind of you know, and people will say, oh, she did so amazing. She did it without any pain relief. It's like, fantastic. We all want that experience. We all want our own oxytocin and endorphins and the positive chemical reaction. But sometimes it is unsafe and pregnancy has complications. I certainly also feel, and I'm only at this place now. I wasn't there when I wrote the book, but I had this afterwards, like, did I cause this? You know, am I a dramatic, eccentric woman? Did my own hysteria invent this? Like the theatrical side of my brain or all this stuff and now I'm at this place where I'm like you know even if I did I also got myself out of that and that's something that I can hold on to it's like no that that is mine and I didn't of course I didn't you can't just decide to have psychosis you know you can't but I definitely think there is a kind of thing with women where it's kind of a given that we can do it a pressure that we should instantly be the maternal one certainly a wider conversation in parenthood as well is that if I go and meet my friends for a drink oh is Hugo babysitting no he's not babysitting you know if he goes out it's just kind of given so Mm. I think there's a there is a kind of larger conversation it's also a responsibility to teach it to our kids right it starts at home the same way you brush your teeth it's a hygiene like your brain needs maintenance and some things are obvious you know, getting outdoors and eating well and sleeping well, they're obvious, but there's extra things you can do too. And I believe that some people find this scary, this kind of stuff. I understand that, but it's scarier to not know. And it's really scary to to go around thinking that you're immune from getting this. You're not, you're not either one of those people that gets mentally ill or not. 
it's kaleidoscopic spectrum. We're all on it, and there's no. It's the same. You know, they're not one of those people that loses their job or not. It just happens. How long did it take you to feel? well again afterwards i took the antipsychotic really well and the hospital treatment there was it for me i it worked i sort of thought not not delusional but i kind of thought when i get home i'll feel better home became like a beacon and i was like when i'm there it will settle but i was allowed home for a week on my own but the condition was that i wasn't allowed to be on my own with jet which was really difficult obviously Mm -hmm. more probably difficult for hugo than me because it was just this kind of really odd dynamic and still the primitive force of being a mum and wanting to pick up a child anybody's child not alone your own is very very powerful and him wanting to come to me was one thing but then I was kind of plunged into this terrible depression which was all-encompassing still on the strong maximum dose of antipsychotic a strong sedative and antidepressant as well as waking up in the night to do jets bottle feeds because I felt better if I was being responsible so I guess it was a crash landing and in some way it was harsh, but actually I recovered really quickly, I think, from my illness. And and actually I get waves. So like as the months go on, I'm like, oh no, no, I feel better. No, no, now I feel even more better. Now, now I feel really like myself and a certain song can come on or the weather will look a certain way and I will just feel in tune with myself, you know, and you just know mm. you, you feel like yourself. And it's been a really amazing thing. Recovering has been, it, it, I mean, the relief of, getting yourself back so is this an ongoing thing the depression that followed no actually I was left with a whole host of new things I never knew existed uh, within me anxiety sleeplessness intrusive thoughts the depression did go but I think that's like a quite a normal actually response to trauma is you can be plunged down there Mm. and especially after psychosis or you're on a high you can be sent back down the anxiety was harder to clear up So that's something that I I prolonged tapering off my medication for because I was like, I just want to make sure that I feel as well as I possibly can be. Most of all for my son, because I have responsibility. There's things I I feel, you know, it doesn't take me, if I have a sleepless night, you know, where I don't sleep great, that could be a trigger for me. If I go too long without exercising or if I drink too much or don't, you know, eat, don't eat the right things, I can feel, just feel quality that's okay it's like kind of loosening the belt and just finding my balance but I think everybody maybe has that yeah absolutely yeah it's a really really brutally honest account the book I guess anyone would feel nervous about that but particularly when you look at the pressure on new mums and mums in general but how did you feel about putting all of this into the public domain given that pressure writing that book has saved my life like there's no two ways about it and the the first kind of draft was 200,000 words over double the length all written (laughs) on my phone so the baby could scramble over me and I'm, I almost am bored of it, which is just amazing because it's like at one point I was so scared, you know, what if it comes back? What if this? What if that? Like just so frightened. And now I'm like, I accept it. And if it was to come back, I mean, I'm not having any more children, but I would be able to cope because I've coped like before. And the list of pros is longer than the cons, actually. Like what I've learned, how much more effective I am as a friend, as a person, as a mum, like how much more engaged I am, enriched and informed, prepared even for what we're going through now in the pandemic, like prioritising, realising what's important. I would have felt like I was shortchanging myself if I didn't be open about this. You've got two options. You either shrink from it or you survive from it. And, and speaking about it, because 
The shame and the blame and the guilt is almost as big as the psychosis itself. That feeling like, what's everyone going to think of me? And once I got rid of that, because all that's happened is I've only been met with people going, oh, no, I've I've had this or I've experienced mm. that or that's OK. And it's it's a great thing to do. And I, some of my friends have even said to me, they're like, I don't feel like I could have spoken to you about so and so and so before. It takes courage and wisdom, I think, to have acceptance of it happening, like as a kind of teen uh, as like a feminist you know that's what you think you are you're like ramp, always railing against something fighting you've got to ask questions and don't stand for that and with the illness I've had to just go wow okay you're bigger than me like I respect you and we're going to be at peace yeah that sounds like a good way of looking at it actually if anybody is struggling or knows anyone that's worried just to say treat it like suspicious luggage hanging around at a station and do question it i get so many messages saying i'm a bit worried that's okay it's good to be worried and just to stress that mother and baby units and a and e and all these things are still available we are in a pandemic but these things that that everybody still takes these illnesses extremely seriously action postpartum psychosis are working really hard around the clock to support families going through what i did and so don't feel like you're putting anybody out of just worried it might be nothing it's better to be safe Laura, what are you up to next? Have you got any anything else in the pipeline at the moment? I do. I'm just getting back to my normal job now, which feels lovely. So writing for children, but um, okay. I do illustrating a little bit on the side. Yeah, I've got some children's books coming out this year and a um, working on the TV series. But majority of the time, I'm just being a toddler's little bitch, basically. <laughs> well... I've got all that to come. Very exciting stuff. <laughs> You'll love it. Okay, Laura, where can we find you on Twitter or Instagram if we want to follow what you're up to? So, yeah, I'm on both Instagram and Twitter. So laura.crawl for Twitter and lauralee.crawl for Instagram. Laura, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster reflected our moods this week? This week we watched 1998's Deep Impact, which was directed by Mimi Leder, which I think is the first film that we've actually done in this that was directed by a woman. Yeah, I think you might be right there. Mimi Leder now does a lot of television, but like big, big budget television. She did a lot of the leftovers. I thought I'd seen the name before the last one of series two when they storm miracle that was Mimi later ah okay yeah came out exactly the same time as a film that was almost exactly the same as it which is armageddon although i have to say i liked this film immensely more than i liked armageddon which people might remember i hated <laughs> team it america has... fuck yeah <laughs> it has a proper broadcast i don't know how many of them were actually genuinely that famous in 1998 but have become famous since but some of them clearly were uh, Robert Duvall who everybody knows I love Tia Leone Elijah Wood Vanessa Redgrave Morgan Freeman but also just scattered around James Cromwell Ron Eldard Blair Underwood John Favreau just loads and loads of famous people and loads of people that made me go oh look there's so-and-so from so-and-so like, for example, at the start, when somebody first discovers the comet and somebody rushes to pass on the news that the comet has been found, he's driven off the road by Dan Doherty from Deadwood. Oh, of course. Oh, Dan. Yeah. 
There's an awful lot of ex-ER cast in here as well. A lot of, if you watched ER, there's loads of people that make it. Oh, look, there's so-and-so. There's Carrie. There's whoever. I quite liked it. I'm going to say that at the start. There were bits of it I didn't like, but for what it is, as a a disaster film, it was quite fatalistic. That captured my mood somewhat. It doesn't all end up okay at the end. Spoiler. I mean, we can talk about it in more detail, but Lucy, welcome. Did you like Hi. the impact? Hello. Well, do you know what? I was expecting to hate it because I'm not really a disaster film fan. And a little bit like you, Hannah, it surprised me. I was really surprised by it and I actually quite enjoyed it. So, yeah. Yeah, they should let women do this more often, right? Yeah, definitely. She did a good job on Mimi. It's very practical, isn't it? It's like, yeah, I mean, we can probably try and stop this, but realistically... Not going to happen. Yeah. So the plot basically is there's a massive rock heading for Earth. We're all going to die. Plucky space guys. In this case, they actually choose space guys rather than racists. Although they're they're (laughs) racist space guys um, into space to try and intercept it. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are bits of this that are totally corny, but that's what we have the, the bingo sheet for. It interrupts these these men's lives their plans to marry their plans to have babies Robert Duvall is busy dispensing folksy wisdom to his kids I need to interject here when he says to his grown-up boys well because he's been he's been to the moon he's been up in space seven times or six times before this will be his seventh and he says me and your mum used to play this game we can play this game that if either of us think that I might not come back we never mention it which is the shittest game ever. It's not a game. Yeah. It's not a game. I don't know, Mick. I've been in lockdown a long time. <laughs> I mean, even in lockdown, that's not a game. I've played Zoom Boggle. So, <laughs> you know. Desperate times. Here we are. <laughs> There's a definite air of ageism underpinning this film. Uh, particularly, we'll start with Robert Duvall because nobody respects him. None of his crew actually respect him because he's just an old guy. And you know that almost immediately you can foresee what his plot is going to be you know he will end up being the one that says oh you know i will sacrifice myself but in this case we will all sacrifice ourselves for the greater good and there's also a woman there's a woman on the crew hannah don't forget the one woman on the crew yeah there is a woman on the crew yes correct and a russian but at the end he doesn't get to say goodbye to his family and everybody else does moving on he's not as fun as the russian in armageddon if they did one thing right uh they got the russian right in armageddon yeah Tia Leone starts off in this news conference. She's been asked to chase this story. What the story actually is, is that the world is about to end. She gets picked up by the, the FBI or the Secret Service, who, whoever they are. She gets taken to meet the president, who is played by Morgan Freeman. And he explains the world's going to end. She's asked to sit on the story, and then the story is announced to the world. And then we cut forward to five months later. And at five months later, she's in a meeting and her boss finally decides to chastise her about that story. For, for, hi- for hiding is, it. I wish every time I got a bollocking off work, somebody waited five months to do it. <laughs> and then I could go, oh, yeah, mate, that was ages ago. You're going to regret this five um, months down the line, mate. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about, I can't remember what she's called. I want to talk about her as a character because I don't like her. Jenny, she's called Jenny. Jenny, she basically, she's like a stroppy 15-year-old. Yeah, because I couldn't work out whether her mum and dad, dad, if her mum and dad split up, 
So the last thing she has a proper memory of is that lovely day on the beach. Or they talk about that, that was a good day. And I assume that there were more good days and the good days got less and her dad and mum split up. But, like, she's clearly in her 30s now. Her dad's remarried. And she t- he's literally yeah. just remarried. And she tells him to get back together with her mum. Oh, fuck's sake, mate. Get a grip. If you're that age and you don't understand I that know, relationships feels... don't always work out, have a word. Give you a wobble. Exactly. Whoever wrote this must be really, really angry at their dad <laughs> for leaving their mum. Because he actually gets punished at the end of this for it by his new family all just running off and leaving him. Yeah. And he's left all alone. Anyway, and let's go back to ageism because eventually the plan to destroy the asteroid doesn't work. And then they have to go with a plan B, which is they're going to move millions of people into these caves in Missouri. They immediately announced that nobody over 50 is going to be able to go. I mean, that is so Dominic <laughs> Cummings. It is incredible, isn't it? It's just nobody over the age of 50. But also there seems to be parts where there's weird horse trading. Elijah Wood's character, for example, he's the kid that actually discovered this. He marries his girlfriend, even though they, I don't know, what are they, 15? They're like 12. Yeah. yeah, very worrying, isn't it? And then there's all, loads of, oh, you come, no, you come. Well, they can all come with me. And then there's a bit where Tia Leone decides she's not going to go. And she lets Carrie from ER go. And she says, you take my place. I'm pretty sure you can't just turn up at the gates of those places and go, oh, yeah, matey told me they didn't want to come anymore, so I could come instead. Yeah, exactly. I suppose they were in an official helicopter, maybe. Elijah Wood's wife isn't allowed in, but then she leaves and then he goes to find her and then she leaves her parents anyway, which meant that she could have gone in in the first place if she'd done what she told. So that's all slightly circular, but it did contain a bit that actually made me raw laughing and it will only be me that laughs at this. Absolutely. But I'm going to say it anyway. When she has to leave her parents and she's and they give her a baby and they put her on the back of a motorbike <laughs> and she has to leave her parents, right? She's absolutely <laughs> sobbing. I'll see you soon. I'll see you soon. It really made me laugh because that would be me. Absolutely categorically. <laughs> if I've seen me in any of these disaster films, that's it. Because as you know, I'm not very good at leaving stuff. <laughs> I can't take it. Lucy might not know this. But when I went to visit my grandma for the last time, and I was well aware it was the last time I was going to see her, I said, see you soon, Nan. Oh, <laughs> wow. <out. laughs> wow. Yeah. So I did I did feel, um, yeah, quite close to her. There's some other just odd bits that make no logistical sense. Like Ron Eldada is, is, in, is introduced to his son for the first time. And his wife says, I named him Orin. And you're like, that. how has nobody bothered telling him what his kid's name's yet? He's been in space, but he hasn't been out of contact. Yeah, because the kid's like nine months old at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a funny bit, like, at the end where they kind of basically remember that the rest of the world exists and Morgan Freeman gives a speech because the worst problem is dealt with and then there's only a small rock hits that all, basically the eastern seaboard of America is destroyed. But then afterwards, like, it's all rebuilt and it's all explained in this speech that Morgan Freeman gives. And it's literally like it's been tagged on. Uh, the wave hit Europe and Africa too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just in case you were wondering what happened in this. Elijah Wood manages to escape by climbing up a hill for ages and ages and ages and dragging people with him. And I sent Mickey a message that says, I feel like Peter Jackson was watching Deep Impact. And he went, that guy can really climb a hill. Let's get him in. Let's get him in. He is my Frodo. When he was getting married, I was like, Frodo, no, don't wear the ring. 
Oh know. yeah, he gives but the rings. Yeah. That all of that said, silly bits aside, which were script problems, I think, rather than anything else. And I think sometimes Robert Duvall treated the script with in parts the contempt it deserved. Um, but in other parts, I actually thought it was good. And I maybe it's just because I'm feeling very negative about the state of the world. But I actually quite enjoyed watching something where it wasn't solved in a really hokey, easy fashion. Because as we've learned from the last few months, that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think maybe that's why I found it. I found it quite dull. I have seen it before a couple of times. Because you didn't like The Day After Tomorrow either, did you? And The Day After Tomorrow was exactly the same. It had no hope in it, really. I don't mind the lack of hope. I've actually found it sort of upsetting that it had so much hope in a government or people in charge who were, one, that fucking diverse, and two, seemed to care. (laughs) Imagine, like, Boris Johnson just going, there's a meteor heading right at us. We've all got our bunkers. Wash your hands. Johnson out. That's it might drop um, <laughs> but yeah I just it was more that I just found it dull whereas the, the nonsense ones I mean and I will go back to my true love from this series which is of course The Swarm they just fill me with joy yeah I mean agreed it isn't my choice I like I like The Swarm I like The 70s my favourite was Avalanche I like those shit 70s ones but if you were asked me if I was ever going to watch this again or Armageddon again this would be my choice Absolutely, rather than watch Armageddon, I think. Yeah. Because Armageddon felt mean-spirited, and this didn't. How can you say that about a film that starts with a man hitting, like, missiles at Greenpeace, Hannah? How can you say it felt <laughs> mean-spirited? But Lucy, did you yeah. Did you find it all right? Yeah, I, do you know what? Like I said, it was quite a surprising film. For something like 1998, it, there was a lot of kind of diversity in it. The character who was um, like Taylor Leone's kind of workmate, who is constantly carrying around a child, oh, constantly. Beth. Yeah, I just felt like saying, "Put the child down. Her legs are going to wither." But it was very much <laughs> just pointing out the fact she was a working mother. It surprised me in the fact that it was obviously you had the token lady, the token black man on the uh, the journey, the Russian. But yeah, the ending, when loads and loads and loads of people are wiped out, I was like, oh, oh, okay, wow, quite like just that. Just eating, eating popcorn. Just, yeah, just yeah. Enjo- enjoying the, uh, yeah, how many people were being taken out. I think my favourite bit is when Elijah Wood's character kind of becomes this celebrity just for finding this, this asteroid that's coming. The boy that stands up and says, you're going to get loads of sex mm. for this. And then famous people get more sex. That's the main reason why it's good to be famous. And everybody claps him, even parents. <laughs> He's only about 12. And so then he'll Elijah be getting more get... sex. Well, yeah, and then Elijah would get married. What was worth noting about him was that kid had bad acne and you almost never see that in films. That's true. They're always the beautiful children. Yeah, that yeah, is true. I think That's perhaps true. they just had to find a volume of children for that and therefore they had to take the ones that don't look perfect. At the beginning as well, I liked the um, the scientist, the one that, you know, unfortunately gets knocked off the road. And he was using a floppy disk as well. That I've made seen me one of those yeah, ages. so hard when it just said, like, transferring to floppy disk. I was like, oh yeah. my goodness. I felt very nostalgic. A little tear floppy for the floppy disk. disk. Floppy disk, yeah. deep impact. It's oh, giving me the raging Wonderful. Home. Should we go to our sheets? Let's. 
Yes. I think I've got five. Oh, I've got three. I have one, two, three, four, five. Five. Oh, it's a draw. It's a draw. Do you want to go first, Lucy? Yeah, so I have uh, this disaster saved our relationship, but I'm talking about the relationship between father and daughter. Yep. Uh, it was a short-lived we, save, but... I mean, save very short. Us. It was about... <laughs> did they have a couple of minutes and then they were taken out? I've got... I wish that guy was the actual president because I think any film Correct. now... Any <laughs> film now, you could say that. And what else did I have? Um, oh, no, do you know what? I think I've only got two. Oh, that's... Well, I've got Brexit analogy because the divide between the old and the young towards the end. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. that's about it that for works. me. Only three. So three. Well, on that note, I have old person sacrifice, and I think I should get about five million ticks for that, to be honest, in this. Well, I don't think that's fair, because every time there's a million major landmarks wiped out, then I only get one, so I'm afraid you still get one. Yeah. Yeah. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film, run up that hill. (laughs) What if you had Kate Bush in your head? Or by your side? Uh maybe but not with a baby attached to me as well i think I that would be really no work. why were they yeah. cut they um, had injuries as well i'm like when did they fall over and bang their head when did that happen who knows see you soon <laughs> <laughs> so many traffic jams oh perfect yeah sense. three my eyes the cgi and i'm actually going for a specific bit on that and that is when greenwich village was overrun by the wave that was poor and finally uncanny prediction of real life event well i could either here go for the sacrifice of old people or i could go for black president yeah because i'm telling you when this was made in 1998 everybody went yeah right like there'd ever be a black president and 10 years later there was hooray then it went downhill but for a brief (laughs) moment i need to recover after the the sad remembrance that we don't have Barack Obama anymore. Anyway, nature, you cruel mistress, throwing asteroids at us. Farewell, major landmark. Bridge collapse. I'm not claiming this one, but there was an interesting comment on women and children first, where the newsreader guy says, isn't it supposed to be women and children first? And they go, well, if you win, you can swap your seat. So it was very much every man for himself there. Yeah, that was, I feel the need to point out again, that was Duck Phillips. Could title be a porn film title? It absolutely could. In fact, it is the film that inspired me to fill that box in that particular manner. And Captain Willing to go down with... That could also be a porn (laughs) Exactly, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And Captain Willing to go down with ship slash plane slash building slash spaceship. Okay, okay. Well, I won, but I feel like... No, um, we we tied. Yeah, we got five each. Did you have five? Oh, okay. But I, I agree with what you were about to say. I was going to say, I think we let, should let Lucy pick one. Yes. Oh, really? Thanks, yeah. guys. Yeah. Oh, a disaster. Do I have to say now? Well, I mean, you could say now, but it could end up just the next 20 minutes of us going, seen it. <laughs> We've seen it, yeah. Seen it. Well, yeah, that's true. Shall seen I have it. a little, I'll have a little look. Okay. <laughs> See you soon. See you soon. See you soon. Standard issue for all women.